Jesus says, Blessed are those slaves whom the master finds alert when he comes back from the wedding. Truly, I tell you, he will fasten his belt and have them sit down to eat, and he will come and he will serve them. Would you all please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, The internet and social media have made all of us hyper aware of everything that is happening all the time. Because we have these things in our pockets and in our purses, we know what is happening, where it is happening, to whom it is happening. And before it's even over, we can read all the comments about what happened, where, and to whom. And some of this, of course, is very, very good. We are more connected now than we've ever been with people all across the world. Because of the instantaneous nature of communication and information, we have been able to help people in need. We've been able to prepare for things we never could have imagined. And there is this invisible thing that is tying us together in ways we previously thought impossible. And beyond all that, I will never, ever be lost for the rest of my life. Do you know how awesome of a thing that is? You can be in the middle of nowhere, pull something out of your pocket, and it will get you home. Friends, that is good news. But of course... A lot of it is really, 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 really bad. You know, a teenager can post a picture of herself online and she will be bullied for it for the rest of her life. An adult can be radicalized through a forum and start committing horrible acts of violence against other people. Older individuals are regularly belittled for not being able to keep up to date with everything that by definition is changing faster than any of us can keep up with it. We create and consume as much information now in two days as we did from the dawn of humanity until 2001. We create and consume as much information now in two days as we did from the dawn of humanity through the turn of the 21st century. It's incredible. We create and consume so much that regardless of our age, we can barely recite all that we've received. And in a very strange way, all this stuff that we see and do, it makes us aware of everything that we're missing. I don't know about you, but we might gather my family together for a family picture. We might be on vacation, and we're all wearing matching outfits, and we'll get everybody together, and we'll post this picture online so that everybody else in the world can see how perfect of a family we have. When, in fact, the family has been pulling each other's hair and screaming at each other the minute previously just to all get them into the frame for the picture in the first place. And then we pull out our phones. We get on our computer, and we see images of friends, family, even strangers or celebrities, and we can't help ourselves but measure our lives against what we see on the screen. You know, we call this in certain circles the Instagramification of all things, or the Facebookification of all things, or the Twitterification of all things. We flock to places on social media more often than not to show all that is right in our lives when the truth is our lives are kind of falling apart. Jesus, in his very strangely parabolic way, has us imagine that we are waiting for our best friend to come home from a wedding. A wedding that we weren't invited to. (coughs) Weddings take place in the Bible all the time. But in the New Testament, they're particularly profound because Jesus' first miracle is at a wedding. 
He turns water into wine. One of the last images in the book of Revelation is a marriage. It's the marriage of the lamb to his bride, the new Jerusalem. Jesus, in the parable, it says he's the master who's come home to his slaves. In our version of this, maybe he's our friend who comes back. And he comes and he returns from a wedding. A wedding that the slaves, a wedding that his friends didn't get invited to. The story makes the claim that we are to be awake. We are to welcome him in glory. And that we will be blessed by his arrival because he brings the party with him to us. Whether it's the master with his slaves or uninvited friends, it is particularly striking that the one who has no reason to do much of anything at all desires first and foremost to, as scriptures say, sit down, hang out, and eat with us. I I don't know if you know this, but Jesus is crazy. Again and again, he contrasts the ways we so foolishly live in this world by showing the opposite. In fact, here, how dying is the only good news around To make matters even more confounding, according to the Lord, the sooner we die, the sooner we can celebrate. Now, of course, the ways we speak about it, the ways we even conceive of our deaths are inherently problematized. But as Christians, our deaths are even stranger because we believe that we have all already died. As Christians, we believe that we have all already died. That's what we say in baptism. It's what we're going to say to Lucas later in the service. You are dying with Christ in order to be raised into new life. That's what baptism is. We say that by Jesus' death and ours, our death and his, we have conquered the whole rotten game of the universe. The sooner we can accept that our lives have been changed irrevocably for the good, the sooner the party arrives through the door. Therefore, we needn't worry about being invited to the party. We don't have to lay awake festering over whether we've been good enough or popular enough or faithful enough or posted the right things online. Our salvation, the party itself, is never contingent on our ability to make it happen or even our ability to be invited to it. Jesus says all we need to do is be like those who know the party is coming to them. It's the greatest thing in the world that our friend stumbles into us in the middle of the night. Perhaps he's in a particularly good mood. He's a few sheets to the wind because he's just been at the wedding reception. See it and believe it, friends. He comes not with sober judgments about why we aren't good enough. He doesn't come with grim requirements about what we have to do or how we have to behave to get a ticket into the party. Instead, he comes humming a tune, humming a tune that he heard on the dance floor. Perhaps he's got a nice bottle of red stashed under his arm that he stole from the bar. He comes to us, and before we can say anything or do anything, he's popped the bottle, and he is doling out finger foods that he stole from the waitresses. This is a weird story. A very weird story. It's not one that gets preached very often. We'd rather ignore it or overlook it or disregard it, but it is there. We are blessed by the risen Lord, for he knocks at the door, even in our deaths, and he comes bringing the party with him. The party is not some far off, distant in both place and time from us. The party is here right now. It's just that many of us are too stubborn to notice. To return to our own parable, we've got our noses so stuck in these things that we're judging our lives against the lives of others and we're doing it so much we can't hear that Jesus is banging on the door. But then Peter perks up. Hey, Lord, is this parable for us, your chosen few, or is this for everybody? It's a good question. 
You know, it'd be nice to know exactly who is supposed to be waiting around for the Lord's party to arrive through the door. Jesus answers the question with a question. Who is the manager that the master will put in charge of his slaves to give them food at the proper time? The previous parable about the Lord coming with the party under his arm, it is meant for all. It is meant for all. But now something starts to change. The Lord said this is for the manager. The manager who doles out the food to the Lord's slaves. It's Jesus saying to the disciples, you and those who continue in your line of work, dare I say pastors, you're supposed to know your job and do your job. So before we continue, I just I must confess that we're at a strange precipice at the moment, one in which Jesus is speaking particularly to future clergy, me, about what I'm supposed to do. Of course, here I am preaching to you about what God has told me to do. It's kind of weird, so for the moment, you can just kick back. This doesn't apply to you. This is just me, so enjoy knowing what's outside of your purview for a moment. He says, pastors, the disciples put in charge of the slaves. How about that? Did you know that you all are slaves and I'm your manager? Yeah, I get to choose when you get to eat. You didn't know that, did you? He says, pastors, pastors in charge of the slaves are commanded to trust. Nothing more, else, or less. Pastors are not called to know everything or be enigmatically clever all the time or full of energy or even to be talented. They are to trust. Trust that they have the truth. The greatest truth of all is that salvation does not come from a particular way of living or thinking or being. Which is a very good word to those of us who keep our noses in our phones. Because we're drowning in a world in which our efforts toward whatever we think our lives are supposed to be are just going to make us feel like we're drowning. It's contrary to what the televangelists say, and what pastors of all shapes and sizes say, and even this pastor a few times. The church does not exist to tell people like you that you have to engage in perfect acts of morality with the expectation that salvation will be your reward. There is nothing you can do to earn God's love. There is nothing you can do to lose God's love. God's wisdom is more foolish than that. See, God more often than not chooses what the world considers nonsense in order to shame the wise. God more often than not chooses fallible pastors to remind all of us that it's the nobodies of the world, the last, least, lost, little and dead, who bring about what we might call holy. And so as the only pastor in the room... I feel what I can only describe as a sense of relief. Because after countless years in which people like me have been made to feel that forceful preaching or masterful obedience or perfect extroversion with just the smallest dash of introversion is the name of the game, it is nice to be reminded here in the parable that Jesus expects the preachers of the church to be nothing more than half-decent cooks. Hear it. Who then is the faithful and prudent manager The master will put in charge of his slaves to give them their food at the right time. Food at the right time. I'm supposed to be a cook. Not a gourmet chef, not even a casino buffet coordinator, but a gospel-minded cook who can rummage through the pantry of the word and turn out a half-decent and nourishing meal once a week. We could look at the meal of preaching, the word incarnate becoming flesh, but it's much better than that. Because the greatest meal of all is not what I preach. It's right here at the table. 
In communion, we find the sustenance that goes beyond all imagining. Clergy are only the people that get to give it to people who are hungry. So long as all of us, whether we wear stoles or not, so long as we come to the table and we get enough death and resurrection in our diets, so long as we are reminded again and again that there is nothing we can do to earn it, there's nothing we can do to lose it, then we will be, as the Bible says, filled. And it's right there that I wish I could say it's over. I wish I could say in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and, and then we'd all say amen, and we'd get on to the baptism, and we'd get on to communion. But, of course, there's still more there. Jesus has a few more words for the preachers. He says, but if, if the manager thinks the master has taken his sweet time in returning back, and therefore he starts to beat his slaves and get drunk, then the master will return and cut him into pieces. So this is a moment, friends, that you can put your hands together and throw up a prayer to the Lord and say, God, thank you for not calling me to be a clergy person. If the manager thinks the master is running late and takes matters into his own hands, then he will be cut into pieces. If preachers decide to take matters into their own hands, they make promises they can't keep. They abuse the weak in their midst. If they create systems in which people can earn anything for themselves in the realm of salvation, then they will be torn apart from top to bottom, whether at the hand of God or by their own undoing. Preachers, managers, cooks of the gospel, whatever we want to call them, are to do nothing more than sit at the foot of the cross with words about what God has already done. They are to share the meal waiting at the table, a meal prepared long before the preacher ever preached the first sermon. This whole parable, for clergy, for lay people, it comes down to one thing. It is about trust. Not a trust that God will come and sweep down and fill all the potholes in our lives, but a trust that God has already done the most important thing for all of us that we will ever need. It's about trust. And when we learn to live with that kind of trust, whether we wear robes or not, then we are living the life of grace. In the life of grace, one in which we know what has already been done for us, something that can never be taken away, that no matter how many doubts we have or waverings or questions, no matter how happy or sad we may become, no matter how awfully we sin, if we simply trust that someone else Jesus has done for us by his death and resurrection what we could never do for ourselves, then we can say thank you, and that's enough. Our whole lives, from beginning to end, they're a mess. They're a mess, and they're all leading to our own death. And it's okay, because we've already died. In baptism, we say we have died with Christ and now we rise with Christ. We say it is Jesus' life who is now our own. Jesus, the one who comes to us from the wedding feast. The one who comes to us with a celebration under his arm. The one who says, I want to party with you. That's the best news around. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. One God now and forever. Amen.